morning, everyone. I'm Stephanie Blastingame. I'm the other half of Jerry. So if I don't get to hug everybody's neck today, I just want to say thank you for inviting us. We always have a great time when we come here, and we wish we could invite you guys over, but you can't fit. But <laughs> So when we do something outside, we're definitely going to have you guys um, over for sure. So I'm going to be reading the, the New Testament, Luke 10, 25 through 37 on page 9. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. I like Jerry and all, but um, if you haven't hung out with Stephanie, you're missing out. It's good to see you guys. Um, I missed you last week, and I'm thankful to Jonathan Austin for for filling in last week, our pastoral intern. Um, I asked him to fill in a while back. I don't think he knew at the time he was also kicking off a new preaching series. So thank you, Jonathan, for for doing that and for doing such a a great job with that. I was away just um, up the road in North Carolina at a at a fall conference for college students um, for Reform University Fellowship, and so got to speak to a whole bunch of college students all weekend, and it was fabulous, and it also reminded me why I love what I do now. So uh, <laughs> college students were wonderful for a weekend, and I love them dearly, but I love all of you, and I missed you, and I'm glad to be back. We're looking at parables of Jesus, the stories that Jesus told And we're going to be looking at these up until um, the 1st of December, up until the season of Advent. And particularly, we're looking at the parables in Luke's gospel, for the most part. And if you remember, if you've read through Luke's gospel, he tells all of these, Luke includes all of these parables of Jesus. Now, we went through John's gospel, and John didn't include any parables. But Luke has Jesus at a certain point turn... And Jesus faces Jerusalem, and it says that he set his face on Jerusalem 
and Jesus starts to move towards Jerusalem. Now, what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem? He's going to be killed. And so Jesus is on, literally, a march toward his death. He knows it. He knows what's coming. He's trying to tell his disciples that. And along the way, there's all these people that he's encountering, and they're asking him these questions. And often, Jesus would respond with a story, with a parable. And those who had ears to hear, they understood what was going on. And there were some who were just, they left more confounded. And this morning, we're looking at this parable of the Good Samaritan. If you've never even been in church before, you've probably heard that term. And you maybe even have read this parable before. It's one of the most famous parables of Jesus. And there's a lot here uh, to cover. We could cover this for a month. But I'm going, to try to, um, I'm going to try to do it pretty succinctly this morning. So let me, let me pray for us. Ask God to help me do that. Father, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this morning what we got to hear read just a few minutes ago were the actual words of our Savior Jesus. What an incredible privilege that 2,000 years later we gather together with people from different backgrounds and different walks of life and we come together this morning and what we hear are the words that Jesus spoke and they are, he is speaking to them to us this morning. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see and that you would give us hearts that are open. Open to saying, you know what, we might be wrong about something and Jesus may have something to tell us this morning. I pray that our hearts would be open to receiving the love that he wants to give to us and does give to us and the forgiveness and the mercy that he gives to us so that you might change us, so that we might look more like Jesus in our homes and in our work and in our communities and wherever we go, that we might follow him. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So my birthday was just a couple of weeks ago, so it's not too late to get me something. Um, I turned 42, which is not a very exciting age to turn, um, but my family was asking me, they were like, what do you want? Do you want us to get you something and they kind of know me, they know, well, they live with me, so they know me, and they know I like, I don't necessarily love surprises, I'd rather just tell you, and normally I kind of struggle, I'm like, uh, I don't really know what I want, but this time I didn't, I knew exactly what I wanted, I wanted a GPS watch, and I got it, right? <laughs> I wanted a GPS watch, and I love it, and the reason that I love it is it tells me exactly how slow I'm going, and I don't have to guess anymore. It just says it right there. You're really slow, right? Um, and it, like, it reads it out for me. But one of the other things that it does that I didn't realize it did when I got it, but I've seen other devices that do this, you're probably wearing some now, is that if you wear it all day, it, it monitors you, right? It monitors your heart. It monitors your steps. And I kind of thought, yeah, when I first saw that, I'm like, I'm never going to pay attention to the steps thing. Like, I don't care how many steps I walk during the day. I'm never going to use that part of this watch. I'm never going to look at it. Turns out I really like to measure myself. I really like to be able to look down at my watch and see how I'm doing. And so the thing about the steps is it tells you how many steps you need. You need 10,000 steps a day. And I think that's determined by like the American Heart Association or somebody who knows more than I do. And in order to have, like, a healthy body and a healthy heart, you need to walk 10,000 steps a day. And here's the problem. 
I almost never walk 10,000 steps a day. I don't like that goal. I'm a pastor, and what pastors often do is they sit a lot. I sit and talk to a lot of you. I eat lunch with you. I read. I pray. All of those things can be done pretty much without stepping, without walking. And so there's this problem with my watch is that I get to the end of the day, and I look at it, and I fail every day. And I don't like to fail. And so what I figured out, you can do something. You can go in, and you can change the number of steps that's your goal for the day. You can knock it down to 5,000. And at the end of the day, you get a little message that tells you, you did it. You completed your goal. You got there. And I love that. It's like getting a little prize at the end of every day. And you all laughed at me because you laughed at me as you're, you're going, Tim doesn't understand the point of the goal, right? The point of the goal is that somebody else set it for you, and it's this many steps, and if you alter it, you, you may have accomplished something, but you're not accomplishing what the American Heart Association says you need in order to have a healthy heart. Now, if you can see through me, then you can see what's going on in this passage. You can see what's happening with, with Jesus in this man who comes up to him. This man, um, Luke tells us, is a lawyer. He's not a lawyer like we think of a lawyer. Um, he is one who is an expert in biblical law. And so what he spends his days doing is studying over uh, the, the Torah, looking at God's word, trying to get a deeper understanding of, of God's law and what it means. And so he comes up to Jesus, and Luke tells us he wants to test Jesus out. He wants to ask this question of Jesus, does Jesus take the law seriously? This is what I do every day. This is what I study. This is what I know the most about, and I want to see, I want to test Jesus and see if Jesus takes the law seriously, because there's some concern floating around about Jesus, because Jesus is often doing things that a lot of these law experts are thinking, that's breaking our laws, and so they want to know, does Jesus take the law seriously? Does he really understand the law? And so he asks him this question, hey, Jesus, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He's kind of, and then he kind of stands back and he watches, right? What's he going to say? And so Jesus, as Jesus often does, when you ask him a question, he asks you a question in return. It's very frustrating, but this is what Jesus often does. He turns back to him and says, well, Mr. Law Expert, this is what you do all day long. You know the law of God. And so you tell me, what does the law say? How do you read it? And Jesus, he's Jesus. He's no fool. He knows that this man is going to answer in a particular way. He knows that. Because this man is not going to go, well, here's the law, and recite the entire law. Because they would have been there the rest of the day. Jesus knows this man may have been able to do that. He probably could, to some degree, recite the bulk of the law. But instead, he does what anyone would have done in this situation. It's actually what Jesus does in another situation, is that he gives a summary of the law. And the summary goes like this. Everything about God's law is contained in these two statements. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you see what Jesus, I think what Jesus is trying to get out of him and what Jesus wants him 
to say out loud is that it's very clear when you sum up the law that the essence of the law, the very heart of the law, the main verb of the law is what? Love. The essence of the law is love. And so what he's saying to this man, he's saying, okay, you want to do something to inherit eternal life. What it's going to look like is this. Perfect, spotless, continuous, never failing love. Love for God at every moment of your life, every molecule of your being directed toward the one who made you and created you for his own glory at every moment you will love him with every part of your heart, every part of your soul, all of your strength and all your mind. Oh yeah, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, do that and you will live. Do that and you'll live. And so the lawyer, he asks, you know, maybe he's hearing it for the first time. That's pretty weighty. I don't think that at every moment of my life I have loved God with all of my heart, strength, and mind. But he skips over that part, and he goes to the next part, and he says, well, let me ask a follow-up question, um, because I think I've got this one. He wants to justify himself, Luke says, and so he asks this question, well, who is my neighbor? Let's define that. If I'm to love my neighbor as myself, then who is my neighbor? Because Jews had a very, at this time, they had a very specific and strict definition of who their neighbor was. And their neighbor looked like them. And their neighbor talked like them. And their neighbor shared the same moral code as them. Your neighbor was not, according to them, and according to this man who's asking the question, your neighbor was not a Gentile. Your neighbor was not a Samaritan. And so he's kind of going, how do we take this down from 10,000 to 5,000 steps? And Jesus is like, oh, that reminds me of a story. And whenever Jesus stops and is like, and he answers your question with a story, it's like, buckle up, right? Because he's about to expose you. He's about to do something that shows you who you are. And who he is in a way that basically nothing else can do. And so how do we approach that for ourselves? I want us to do it this way. I want us to ask for a couple minutes, where do you find yourself in this story that Jesus told? I'm not going to go back and recount it. You heard it. You've probably heard it before. Where do you find yourself in this story? Because that's what Jesus is doing to this law expert is that he's giving him some examples and he's putting them in this uncomfortable situation of like, which one of these are you? And then at the end, he's asking, which one was the neighbor? And so where do we find ourselves as the hearers of this story? Where do we find ourselves? You know, so I'll start with this. Some of the most prominent people in this story are not actually in the story. That doesn't make sense. What I mean is there wouldn't be a story without certain characters. And those certain characters play a major role. They create the story. They're the robbers. They're the robbers. And what did the robbers do when they looked at this man? Did they see him through the lens of grace? Did they see him as a neighbor? No, these, these robbers were lying in wait, and they saw somebody by himself coming down 
this road, which was known to be a treacherous road, was known to be a dangerous road, and they saw him coming, and they, they thought, that man is vulnerable, and he has something that I can take. And so they looked at this human being, this person that's made in the image of God, and they said, what can I get out of that person for myself? How can I take advantage of that person for myself? Now, maybe as we start thinking about this story, you weren't thinking about the robbers, but let's think about the robbers for a minute, because this might sting a little bit, that maybe we find ourselves and maybe we can identify with the robbers. Now, I'm not necessarily saying, you know, that... You've beaten somebody and left them bloody and robbed them and left them laying on the side of the road. Some of us may have done that. Some of us may have done that multiple times. But I guarantee you there is not a person in this room who has not looked at another human being who is made in the image of God and thought, I can get something out of them for me. I can take something from them whether it's physically, financially, sexually, emotionally, I can use this other person for my own gain. And that, you know what that means? That means we're robbers. That we have not always thought, how can I make this person prosper? How can I think about their good? How can I, when I see a person coming down the road, how can I make their life better? How can I point them to where hope is found? Instead, we've often thought, How can I use this person? How can I use them? So maybe let's move on from that. It's too uncomfortable to think about. Let's think about maybe the Levite and the priest, the priest and the Levite who pass by. These two other pass by. They see the man on the road, and obviously they scoot over to the other side, and they go around him. Let's say you're in a a major city that is known for its crime, and you're walking down a back alley, going back to your hotel. Maybe you're on a business trip. And you're thinking, um, i got to get through this area quickly. I don't really know where I am. And you come up upon a guy who is naked, all right, number one, and is bloody and is laying on the ground. Now, your first thought might be, okay, I'm already a little bit nervous and I'm already a little bit scared. And now there's a naked, bloody guy laying on the road. So now I'm really scared. And now I'm really nervous. And you thought, you know, I've had a long day. I'm headed back. I've, I've, I, my work is important. And the work that I do is important in the world. Maybe I do something that just has a great impact on society. And I'm really excited about that. And here I am walking down the road. And if I stop to help this guy, it is going to take forever. Besides, you know, the kids need help with homework. I probably should get there to help for dinner. And then you kind of think, you know what, maybe I'm even seeing this all wrong. Maybe that guy on the road who's lying there in a pool of his own blood, maybe he deserved what he got. Maybe he's just a drunk or a druggie. Maybe he didn't pay somebody he was supposed to pay and he got beat up. And maybe he deserved it. Maybe that's what he should have gotten and so... If I helped him, like, would I really be helping him? And so maybe I should just move along. Why should I put myself in danger to help this one? And I think that if we're honest with ourselves, then we can all relate to some degree to this priest and this Levite. We've all looked out for our own comfort and our own safety. 
more often than not. And we've seen this person maybe who's in need in the worst possible light. And sometimes we've even formulated narratives around who they might be and how they got in that situation so that we could protect ourselves from having to get too close to them. You know what? They're probably just lazy. They probably brought this on themselves. And I probably should just keep walking by. But the last man who comes by, he would have surprised the hearers in a lot of ways I think the primary way he would surprise the people who are listening to this story is they would have expected the succession to be a priest, a Levite, and then the next guy to come along would be just a layman, a Jewish layman, right? And it kind of would make sense that Jesus was already kind of jabbing at the religious establishment. Um, He was already doing some things that were controversial, and it kind of makes sense that the hero of the story would be this Jewish layman. You've got the priest who's too important and the Levite who's too important to help. They're hypocrites. But here's this common man. He comes by and he helps and he is the true neighbor. But Jesus does this thing where he flips it around on the law expert and he says the next guy who comes by is a Samaritan. He's a Samaritan. Now that means nothing to us maybe. I mean if you haven't studied what a Samaritan is. I'm going to talk about it in a minute, but let me give you an idea based on our current climate and our country of what this could have looked like. And this isn't a political statement, so don't talk to me afterwards, but think about it this way. Like, maybe Jesus was like, you know, there was this Republican line in the road. He was all beat up. And then a congressman walks by and doesn't even help. And a Republican congressman, and then, you know, the Senate Majority Leader of the Republican Party, walks by, and he doesn't even help this promising young Republican. And then a Democrat comes by. Or flip it around. Whichever way you want to do it, you get my point. And if you can see how that is so tense right now in our country, you get this much of how things were tense between Jews and Samaritans because they were unbelievably tense. It barely scratches the surface. Just think about some of the things, some of the barriers that this Samaritan has to cross in order to help this beat-up Jewish man lying on the road. He has to cross this barrier of ethnicity and race. And it was huge for them. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. Jews called Samaritans dogs. They don't matter. Get them out of here. Don't, like, I, I don't inconvenience me with these dogs. Let them get what they deserve. That's how, at this time, Jews saw Samaritans. They saw them as an inferior race who had intermarried with pagans and defiled themselves, and basically they should get what they deserve. Surely when God says, you should love your neighbor as yourself, he's not talking about them. He has to cross this religious barrier. Jews... um, also, they saw Samaritans sort of as religious quacks. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the best word I could think of, is that these people are just, you know, we're orthodox, we've really thought through this, but these people have taken some of Judaism and they've intermarried, so they've, they've taken other religions and they've mixed it in together, they've defiled our religion, and they need to pay for that. They're walking on holy ground and they've messed up, and it's just more fuel 
for hatred. This man crosses the obvious barrier of safety. I mean, he, he put, this Samaritan puts his life in, in danger. I imagine as he kneels down to help this guy, he's thinking, am I about to get whacked on the back of the head? Because they're probably still around. Those robbers are probably still here, and so he has to put his life in danger in order to help this man. He puts his own safety aside, and it's a pretty scary situation. I love the way that Martin Luther King put it in the the beginning. I put a quote in the beginning of the bulletin. You can go back and read it later. But he basically said, you know, the priest and the Levite walk by, and they think, what will happen to me if I help this man? But the Samaritan walks by, and he says, what will happen to this man if I don't help him? It's a really different way of looking at the situation. He suffers on behalf of this person who is his cultural, racial, religious enemy. And it cost him. It cost him money. It cost him time. It cost him from riding on his own donkey because he's got to put this guy, this beat up bloody naked guy on his donkey now and walk beside it. It cost him a lot of things, his oil and his wine that he, that he dresses his wounds with. But also notice this. This Samaritan, he, he takes him to an inn and he tells the innkeeper, take care of him. I imagine he gave him instructions on what he wanted to do. He gives him some money and he says, whatever you spend, if you have to spend more, I'm coming back. And so this man is like, I'm not the person who's going to solve everything, but I'm a piece of it. And there's other people who need to play a role in this man's life. And so I'm going to take him to a place where he can get more help. I'm going to help make sure that he gets that help. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to help him pay his bills, and I'm going to make sure he's restored to health. But he also has boundaries. Because we don't know where this man was going, but he was obviously going somewhere else, and maybe the person he was going to also needed him. And so he was wise in the way he helped this man. Let me just put it plainly, and as plainly as I can, as bluntly as I can. When Jesus is, is asked this question, who is my neighbor? This is how Jesus answers And you may have heard it a million times before, and it doesn't shock you like it should. But this is how he answers. And what is he saying? He's saying your neighbor isn't just the one who is easy for you to understand. She isn't the one that you invite to a dinner party because you know that you'll have a nice conversation because you already all agree on the same things. Your neighbor is also, Jesus is very clear in pointing out, Your neighbor is the one that you might not understand at all and who actually might be your cultural enemy. They might be the person that you understand the least. They might be the person you disagree with the most. They might be the person you see life the most different from. This is what Jesus is doing in this parable. And it shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't shock us for a couple of reasons, but I'll give you the first reason. First is Jesus has already preached a sermon where he said these words. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you might be children of your father in heaven. Because this is what I'm like. Friends, this is our calling in the world. It is our calling individually. It is our calling collectively. 
is to cross borders in order to love our neighbor. Why? Why do we do that? We do that because, well, if I do that perfectly, then I'll inherit eternal life. I'll get my 10,000 steps. I can go to bed feeling really good about myself. No. No. That is not the fuel for this. If it is the fuel for this, you become a self-righteous moralist. And you end up looking down on other people who aren't loving their neighbor as well as you are, therefore not loving those neighbors. Anyway, you get it. No, what is the reason? The reason is this. And this is what I think Jesus is, as this man walks away, I hope that it registered with him, is that what Jesus is saying is that this is what God has done in order to love you. This is what he's done in order to love you. Jesus sets aside his own glory. Jesus humiliates himself. Jesus sets aside his comfort. He takes on our creatureness. He takes on our flesh. He humbles himself. He sets aside his safety. He moves towards his enemy, and it's very costly to him. And who is his enemy? This guy is. This guy right here. Scripture says that we are all born enemies of God, and Jesus comes down, and he moves toward his enemy in love so that he might restore them and heal them and bring them back to full health. You see, the last place where you can see yourself in this story may be the most obvious, but we just skipped right over it. It's the man lying in the road. It's the man lying in the road who can't do anything, who's at, he's at his wit's end, who needs somebody to help him. And here's the thing, friends, that's where Jesus has found each one of us. That's where Jesus came to do. That's where Jesus found us. He found us without hope or help in the world and he loved you and he forgave you and he restored you and he brought you into his home. He brought you into his family. He fed you at his table. He gave you his righteousness so that God looks at you right now and he says, you are my beloved child and in you I am well Please, because you are clothed now with the righteousness of my son, Jesus. Now, if those barriers that Jesus had to pass through in order to get to an enemy like me and make me a son, if those have been obliterated, if those have been abolished vertically, it has to make us ask the question, what barriers do we have to move through horizontally in order to love my neighbor? How do I do that? What barriers do I have to move through in order to follow Jesus? And I think, and I'll end with this, and I think it's pretty um, obvious, the barriers haven't changed that much from Jesus' story. The things that we pass through, that we have to pass through in order to love our neighbor, they haven't changed that much. One of the first ones is ethnic and racial boundaries and barriers. And I know, like, some of you are like, I don't, I'm tired of talking about race. And you've told me that. And some of you are like, the state of race relations in our country right now are so bad that I can't stop talking about it and I have to keep talking about it because it's driving me crazy. And the truth is, there are, and and you know this, there are so many wounds that we are connected to in the church, especially I talk to my white brothers and sisters, that we are connected to in the church, wounds that by association, whether or not you've done anything in particular, by association, you have been a part of. That we not only have to repent of, 
but we have to move past because Christians have to lead the way with the gospel in burning in their hearts to view one another through the lens of grace. We have to do that. We're called to do that. This is what it means to go and do likewise. We have to move past economic barriers. Because the easiest thing in the world for us to do is to only hang out with people who make around the same that we make. Because here's the thing. They like the same stuff I like. They like to vacation in the same places. They like to go to the same events. They like to drink the same coffee. We have a lot to talk about. It's just super easy to do it. And so... If I stay within this bounds, I can be a really good neighbor to people who can also all afford to do the same things I can afford to do. And it's common to look at other people and go, if they're in a lower state, it must be something that they've done. This must be a moral issue. If they can't kind of get to where I'm at right now, it must be because they're lazy or they're, you know, they got fired a lot. Maybe they just are incompetent. I don't know. And it's really easy to not take into account the complexity of someone else's life, a neighbor's life. It's, it's really easy to not take into account the complexity of the hardship that somebody else has faced. It's really easy to not take into account the complexity that we live within a world that has broken systems. And often those systems are unjust and often they work against particular people. And they keep squashing them down. It's really easy to not... Think about any of those things. We have to move past political barriers. Have you noticed that we live in a very polarized culture politically? I don't know if you've noticed that or not. If not, I'm announcing it to you this morning. I'm telling you, if you've been living in a cave, the hatred and vitriol that is spewed across political aisles is at an all-time high, and it grieves me and breaks my heart to see that some of the ones spewing the most vitriol and hate are ones who say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this cannot be, and it should not be. We have to move through barriers of safety because for some reason, I think that what we think is that safety is an inalienable right that's handed to us from God, and it's not. Jesus isn't that concerned about how safe you are. He's just not. It's hard for us to hear that because we're thinking about, I've got, you know, things I just got to take care of. We can be wise, but Jesus is saying, you know, I don't want you to worry about who can hurt your body. Um, Look up here. I'm the one who's Lord over your soul. Let me just end with this one. What about moving through the barrier of annoying people? Right? I mean, just people who you don't like, they annoy you, their personality grates against you, they're in this room this morning with you, worshiping Jesus. They follow the same God, and you're like, I would rather go talk to anybody other than them. Maybe we can start there. Maybe we can start at the meal going to talk to someone who you find just kind of annoying. Now everyone's going to get self-conscious at the meal now because you're thinking, is this guy talking to me because they think I'm annoying? Get that out of your head. Just talk to people. Cross that aisle. Cross that barrier. Maybe it's somebody that lives with us in our own home. And the thing that we do is we demonize them and we treat them as an enemy 
and we think the worst about them. And Jesus is saying, I want you to love your neighbor. They might sleep in the same bed with you. They might be in your house. Here's the thing, church, in our community, in our homes, we have a choice. We have a choice to make every day. We can see the needs of our neighbors and we can choose to move away and we can choose to ignore and we can choose to associate with people who are just like us and it's easy at every level and we can say, these are my neighbors and we can go, go to bed at night and we can say, I met my goal, I got my 5,000 steps, and it feels really good, and I'm doing a great job. Or we can look at the needs of others, and we can say, I cannot believe how Jesus has crossed through every imaginable barrier in order to come find somebody like me. I cannot believe that Jesus has moved close to me in my sin and in my shame and in my guilt and he has loved me, and he has forgiven me, and he has anointed me with oil. And we can move away from that and say, filled with his love and his grace and his forgiveness, we could say, I want to be like that. I'm already forgiven. I can't do anything to inherit eternal life. Jesus has given it to me as a free gift. But what I can do is respond to that gift and say, I want to go and do likewise. I want to love like the one who has loved me. May Jesus give us the courage and the grace and the boldness to do that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning for Jesus. And we praise you for his love that moved towards us and found us lying in the road without any hope. Ones who had turned away from you and run away from you and yet Jesus continued to move toward us and he moves toward us now at this table. And Father, I pray that in this table we would see that Jesus has said to us, you are my neighbor, and I invite you to come and live in my house. Father, that is a hard thing to imagine for us. It's a hard thing for us to believe. And so thank you for the sacrament of the church that you give us that proclaims it to us and preaches it to us every week. Father, we need to hear it once again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.